Hi, Tribe. I'm Evelyn. And I'm Versavia. And you're listening to Objectively Typed, a podcast where we explore the objective personality system. Today, we'll be talking about meditation, mindfulness, our practices around these things, and how that relates to objective personality and typology in general and self-growth. So today's topic is a little bit more of the self-growth side of things and how that relates to OPS and our own experience and our own types if you will. So anything else you want to say on that before we jump in? No, I think that covers it fairly well. There is one thing, I guess, um, because I'm SF and I definitely have an element of not always respecting NF hippie stuff. This is not going to be a hippie conversation. This is going to be grounded in some solid sensory. Just, just, I guess, a disclaimer. (laughs) For the savior sensories out there, but for the hippies out there, because I am NT with the side order of NF, there might be some hippie. There might be some hippie. Yes, there's nothing wrong with hippie. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm just I mean, saying. I've got my I've got my drum right here, <laughs> so we can pull out drum circle real quick. Uh, so I'm gonna um, need some weed if we're gonna do that. <laughs> What's funny is I don't. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, okay, so I wanted to actually poke you first, if you will, as I wanted to know what your experience is with, or or we'll start with just what is mindfulness um, and what it's not. Like, what's been your definition and experience with it so i actually have um and i think you and i have mentioned this in previous episodes uh never really been a big fan of meditation i tried so many times over the years and each time i'm like this is just a load of shit what am i doing here (laughs) and more recently i found something that was effective and i think one of the things that has been really instrumental in that is a shift in what mindfulness is and isn't and i think there's this perception that medit well first of all meditation and mindfulness those are two words that mostly mean the same thing but are actually a little different yeah they're not the same thing true so mindfulness is i think the scientific definition Uh, Meaning you are mindful of your own thoughts. Just like as a neutral third party observer, as you have thoughts, you observe those thoughts without judgment, without going into the thought, without enhancing it, without pushing it away. You just observe what's happening. Right, right. Well, it's it's your thoughts and your experience, too. So you can be mindful of what you're doing also. So it could be body awareness. It could be um, thoughts. uh, You know, it's a variety of things. Yeah. So in terms of like OPS, it's it's decoupling your observers from your uh deciders right you you're, you're removing whatever the f the t the tribe the self wants to do with it and you're just observing yeah 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 you're taking your judgments out of it yeah the the judging functions in the classical sense like you really are yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. sometimes i see it as almost like um a pure oe or pure uh taking in from your observers um, yeah i think i think I would agree with that. Um, I'm not 100% sure I would commit to OE, OI, whether OI is really absent there, but there's definitely a lot of OE going on. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes it could be easy to think of the sleep animal as meditation or that, you know, but from my experience, and we'll get into this, um, what sleep is, is about organizing your known information for yourself, which is more of a like a a rumination type of process. Whereas meditation to me, meditation and mindfulness uh, to me is not that like it's not going over your known information for yourself. That's a more active process, even though we call it sleep. It's still more active than just purely observing. Yeah. Yes. And well, I want to get back to rumination a bit later, but I wanted to ask you, so I, I come from more of a, a psychological background, especially mindfulness and what the research says on it. But meditation, um, I think because a lot of your experience with it has, has been more of the um, Buddhist approach. Yeah. So could you like, so what is meditation in your definition? Oh, meditation in my definition. I was going to get in the Wayback Machine. I'll start to get in the Wayback Machine and go through like uh, my experience with it. But Uh, so actually I I think I kind of will anyway. So I first started meditating when I was 18 years old in about 2000, that year 2000. So it's been, it's been a minute since I've been meditating. So you've been meditating half your life. Yes, I have at this point. That's seriously impressive. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. So I, and the way I got into it was kind of this weird, um, oblique thing where I was doing a school project and it was, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church. So it wasn't Buddhism actually, like when I first started, 
um, the, the Unitarians had a meditation group and I had always heard of it. And so I joined them and we just learned basic mindfulness meditation. So my first experience with meditation was mindfulness meditation, which is you just, uh, kind of to your point earlier, where you just sit and observe your thoughts and your experiences, uh, without any sort of judgment. So that was my introduction into it. And then as the years went on, I learned more about Buddhism and I eventually found my way into the Soto Zen tradition of Buddhism. And I really found my way into the Soto Zen um, tradition. Part of the reason I did was I lived in Wichita, Kansas, and there weren't a lot of meditation groups. So it wasn't like I was like, oh, this is so, you know, like heart drawn to it. It was just like, oh, this is where we're sitting. Okay. And we're doing Zen. Okay. Um, so, (laughs) so I do come from a traditional Zen background where in Zen meditation, you sit facing a wall with your eyes open and you just watch your thoughts. So it's very similar to the insight meditation tradition or mindfulness meditation. Like um, Renzai Zen has a mantra or not a mantra, but a koan, like a question that you ask continuously in your head. But Soto Zen, um, what they call Zazen is just sitting. So you, that's the instruction that we tell people. We give them a lot of instructions on how to hold their body. But essentially, you just sit for half an hour, and then you uh, do walking meditation for about five to 10 minutes, depending, and then you'll sit again for half an hour. So that's, that's been my experience with meditation. Um, and then I, I could, I could go on and on about it. But <laughs> but thank you for clarifying as to what Soto Zen means, because I was like, huh? yeah, um, yeah. I, I think one thing that at least for myself, like coming into it and other um, associations that I had with meditation um, is that it's like clearing your mind of thoughts. And I right. always really, really struggled with like, but I can't. My mind doesn't clear of thoughts. How do I do that? Exactly. Yeah. And that shift in like, you're not, well, at least for myself when I practice, it's not about clearing my mind of thoughts. It's being mindful of what my thoughts are. And if there's a particular intention or uh, structure to that practice, then there might be some more. And some of that can be a very sleep type of processing. Yeah, yeah. It, it can sometimes be that. Yeah. Uh, so the way that I was taught, so in the sort of insight meditation slash Zazen, like I said, they're very, very similar. Uh, Zazen, real quick, Soto Zen comes from Japan. That's probably one of the biggest differences, whereas insight meditation comes from Southeast Asia in the Vipassana tradition. Um, and so it's it's the older style of Buddhism, and then it went through China to Japan and and the Soto Zen was, they often say, was the farmer Zen. So this is what the commoners would do. And then Rinzai was what the samurai would do. But um, the way that I was taught that, um, in terms of the thoughts, though, is that it's like a train going by where there's a bunch of cars on the train. And you should just be watching those trains going by. You shouldn't be jumping on them and engaging with that thought. So you might have a thought. You might have even a question that just keeps recurring. But the idea is just to watch that. And just keep watching it. <laughs> so so that is the... Could you tell us, like, wh- what are the differences between Soto, Zen, Insight Meditation, and Renzai? And Renzai? Yeah, so... Those so were the three things you just mentioned, right? Those were the three I mentioned. So uh, I will say this. So uh, Vipassana Meditation, also known as Insight Meditation, is... Uh, it's, it comes from Southeast Asia. It comes from the older, I'll say the older tradition of Buddhism, the uh, Theravadan tradition of Buddhism. And then so because Buddhism started in India and there was the Theravadan school, which was the first school. And then there was the um, the Mahayana tradition. And so the Mahayana tradition went through China. Uh, it's also so if you think of like the Dalai Lama and uh, Tibetan Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism. And that went through China. And then they eventually went to Korea and Japan. And that's where Zen comes from. So Zen is technically a Mahayana tradition. But what is it? Oh, well, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll get there. Sorry. <laughs> well, I want to differentiate the two just so that just so that you know that they're it's not. origins. Okay. Yeah, the origins of them, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you know that they're like, they're not the same. Um, so, so Zen has two forms, Soto and Renzai. In Renzai Zen... Um, they practice with koans, which is a question that in learning the question, in working through the question, which is a little bit more of like, yeah, like that sleep processing kind of like it's like so that's the type of question like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a noise? Right. 
uh, what's the sound of one hand clapping? You hear these like weird Zen questions. That's that's Rinzai. And so when you go into Rinzai, uh, if, if you're going into a Rinzai Zen um, monastery, school, whatever, you'll get a koan that you have to like work with. And so you'll meditate on that question. It's like a it's like an object of meditation, if you will. Um, it's something that you can sit and think about. And through investigating that question, the idea is that you'll come to see sort of the reality of your existence. It's kind of an interesting way that they approach it. Whereas that sounds yeah. like the questions that you gave as examples, it sounds like almost like NT puzzling it out. Yeah. And through NT puzzling it out, you'll discover the sensory. Well, and it's more that there is no actual answer to these. Like these are like right. puzzles and riddles that don't really have an answer. So the I think the idea is to kind of, yeah, NT, you exhaust your puzzle your puzzle figuring out brain eventually because it's like you can't you know so then you come to this like still place of just paying attention to your experience which is what soto zen and insight meditation just kind of get to from the get-go okay. <laughs> they just say just sit and just watch your experience occur um and that's where they that's that's kind of the the approach that those schools of buddhism take it's less okay. sort of mental activity and more about just sit on the cushion and observe your experience now that's really hard for people a lot of people can't do that yes <laughs> um <laughs> i'm such person yeah which might be why i mean this is now me just speculation time might be why these other traditions have bubbled up right i mean if you can sit there and puzzle over something for a long enough time you eventually realize oh uh okay there's no answer to this there's no there's nothing there <laughs> and so i'm just gonna pay attention yeah yeah um i do want to say that there is this like on the i guess on the sensory side of things when there is research that's done about um people who practice or people who have practiced their whole life they'll, they'll take um monks who've been practicing their whole life and uh, put them in an fMRI, which uh, mm -hmm. for people who don't know, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging. That's like when you see scans of the brain and like little parts lighting up, those are coming from an fMRI. Well, fMRI is like a GIF and MRI is just a, a, a photo, um, not, not living. Right. So when they put them through an fMRI um, and when they are practicing, there will so your brain is constantly firing the neurons are constantly firing there's always activity going on in your brain um people who are really skilled in practicing you can literally watch their brain quiet down and they yeah. just like bring down all the firing that's happening in their brain and it just quiets down and that is just mind-bogglingly impressive yeah 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 it, it is pretty pretty incredible and like you know um in, in coming from sort of that traditional environment, we were often sort of discouraged from trying to even think about, like, what's the point? <laughs> like, because a lot of people say, well, why meditate? Like, why do it? And, you know, to your point, like, we have brain scans uh, that show that it can, like, calm the mind. We also, you can, all, one of the, the, like, practical things. So, like, my job, I work at, I work at Boeing, which is a large company. And we've started rolling out mindfulness and leadership classes. Um, and part of the reason why we're doing that is that when you learn to be mindful, you can start putting a little bit more, we call it like space between what happens to you and then your reaction to it. So you're less reactive. And that's what that practice really teaches you to do. Because you're just like, you're able to sort of take some distance between yourself and your experience. You're, you're able to learn that muscle, if you will. Um, and in doing that, you can be less reactive, less, uh, I was going to say stress, but yeah, like, because you're not sort of taking things so personally, if you will, you know, because things, you're able to kind of give some space. And I think um, you bring up a good question, um, which I think would be interesting to discuss is like, why are we even bringing up mindfulness in the context of OPS? Like, right. What's the connection there? Why do we think it's important enough to dedicate a whole episode to? Yeah. And for, for me personally, I think there's a, there's a few different, few different things. <laughs> um, one might be just because I came from this sort of mindfulness and meditation space first before coming here. One of the things that it's allowed me is when I get my type, I'm not, I don't take it like super, super personally, if you will. Like I don't, I don't then plug that into my identity 
of who I am as a person. And part of that comes from like years and years of meditating and understanding that who I am as a person is an ever-changing thing that I can't define anyway. Um, Do you think part of that might be coming from being a double decider as well? Where it's easier for you to see both sides? It, I mean, it, it's hard to say, it's hard, it's hard to say, uh, because we're both double deciders. So I can't like, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I mean, I can tell you, you know, over these 18, almost 19 years of meditating, I spent a lot of time on, uh, the self because that's a huge aspect of Buddhism that I'm not even like digging into right now. But, uh, so I learned how to you know, over years and years of, of meditating, you, you start to sort of give space to your identity and what you, makes you, you. And so is that because I'm a double decider or is it because I meditated for 18 years? I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't say, but probably a little column A, like a little column B. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. So that's, that's part of it for me. And then the other aspect is to me, um, the whole purpose of OP, like the whole reason why we're doing this is for self-development and self-growth. And I think that having a nice um, understanding of ideas that are already in mindfulness and that space will help you. Because I think like um, in, in David Shannon's class, they talk a lot about the hero's journey, about starting to take responsibility for everything that happens in your life and so forth. I think that that key, it, it just, it dovetails really nicely into mindfulness. Because one of the things mindfulness teaches you to do is to watch what happens to you and not be so reactive to it, right? And I, I feel like that's a nice complement to the hero's journey and learning how to like be more responsible and, and take on your hero mentality, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that it's, um, if OPS is the framework, mindfulness is one of the tools that we can use to then do something with this framework. Right. And then to bring it back to the point that you made, like ultimately what, what is the purpose? Like why, okay, so I'm this type. Yeah. Right. This is my, this is my blueprint. Okay. And then what? Like, so you have this information, but what are you doing with it? That's the important thing. And I think where you and I are really well aligned is that what we want to do with it is we want self-growth. We want it to enrich our relationships. We want it to enable us to better understand ourselves and the people around us. And I think uh, there are so many different ways that you can do that. And mindfulness has been a tool for helping us achieve those things really well for both of us, which we were both pleasantly surprised to learn that the other one had experience with it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's. It's just like, you know, um, the fact that Boeing saw fit, although although I will say the Boeing program was a grassroots program, there were enough people who were meditating that they said, hey, let's create a class. And then so they pitched that to leadership and now it's being taught like all throughout the company, that kind of thing. And so it's, you know, it's a similar sort of thing where it's like if it's useful in the workplace, it's also useful when you're when you're working with, um, you know, typology and things like that. I think that I think that. Um, one of the the pitfalls, if you will, of of sometimes being in the typology space is that people get so like they get so attached to their type and they get so like entrenched into what this means or what that means that you end up losing you lose the forest for the trees. Like you, you kind of lose the point of, of the whole thing because it's like, oh, well, I'm still struggling on whether I'm a F-E-S-E or a S-E-F-E. Like I can't get past that. Like, <laughs> I think- Right. At the end of the day, it doesn't yeah. matter. You yeah. should you should take responsibility for the F-E and the S-E, and you should take responsibility for the things that aren't in your stack as well. And just, like, that should be the, like, try to shift towards a growth mindset in all realms rather than using your savior S-E as an excuse to not N-I. Exactly, exactly. Or to or to then judge others for theirs, too, you know? Yes. Like, to say, like, oh, well, you're just a censor. So, you know, that classic, like, M- MBTI dirty censor thing. Like, yeah. Like, so, and that's where... Uh, well, to your point, I don't have to F-E because I have T-E in my stack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't have so, to worry about your emotions. I don't have to worry about it. Right. So I think no, that... that's bullshit. <laughs> exactly. So sorry, guys, if you're listening and you're like this, we're sorry. But, <laughs> yeah, but guess what? Maybe not that, but sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is where we're coming from, that we're coming definitely from a, a, a self-development growth mindset place. And that's where, to me, learning mindfulness is like a basic tool in that toolkit. Like, it's just a, a, a basic practice, 
how I got into mindfulness um, is actually, so uh, as we'd mentioned, 2014 was kind of a wreck of a year for both of us. Um, And one of the things that has helped me finally heal from that 2018, one of those things has been OPS. And then the other really big component of it has been mindful self-compassion, which is um, taking a lot of the research in self-compassion and putting it together with mindfulness into this very intentional eight-week program to teach you the skills of how to use mindfulness for self-compassion. And then through that process, enable yourself to move towards a more growth mindset in a lot of areas of your life as well as other things and it's very much a toolbox it's like it's a toolbox and like you know for this thing that you're experiencing maybe this is the tool that you need and for this other thing you need you know sometimes you need a hammer and sometimes you need a screwdriver and mindfulness is one of those things that you can pick out when you need it yeah yeah exactly exactly Um, Well, so you brought up how um, at Boeing that there was enough value in the mindfulness that people created this program around it. Um, When I started at my company, about a month into my job, we had a company-wide all hands, and we have this really great tradition of doing lightning talks. Anybody in the company has five minutes to do a lightning talk about any topic that they choose. Like my VP, uh, VP of engineering, did a five-minute talk about... It's called, I think it's capsicum or something like that. It is essentially anal, uh, beaver anal juice that is used as a flavoring in a lot of foods. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So literally, you could talk about anything. You could talk about anything. Yeah. um, People really love these. Um, I, of course, had been there only a couple weeks. I didn't know what, I don't know what I was doing, but I was like, eh, I'll talk about mindful self-compassion. Yeah. At the time, I was taking a course in mindful self-compassion. And even now, it's been months. Uh, people are still pinging me um, or coming up to me and saying in, um, in the halls, like, that was really interesting. Can you give me more resources about it? So this is definitely something that adds value and is intriguing enough for people. That's why I kind of wanted to bring it in here, because to me, all of this is in that in that category of self-growth and and self-development and all of these things are represent kind of a constellation and I feel like you need a little bit of you need a little bit of a bunch of different things maybe that's just my EP talking you know I'm an EN I'm an ENFP and so I'm like oh we need all these different ideas and we could just make connections between them you know uh I naturally kind of do that but I think there is some value to to having um some outside type perspective too I, th- I think you, like, I mean, on the one hand, you're right, it is your EP talking. But on the other hand, like we were just saying a few minutes ago, you know, like you need to take responsibility for all of the functions, regardless of what's in your stack. That means that you do have to gather, even yeah. if it's your last function, you like, you need to gather some things to see what else is out there, yeah. whether that's sensory or intuition. Yeah. And and to me, like a lot of, a lot of what I hear Dave and Shannon kind of preaching and where I see OP to be different from, um, you know, Myers-Briggs, where it came from, especially, I don't know much about like Enneagram or Big Five or anything, is is the idea that like our saviors are just, they're like two um, tires that work and the other two don't. And having kind of ownership of that, which is what you're saying, you're, you know, you need to take ownership of the full, of the full car. And I think... I think for new people coming in, that might be such a heavy ask. Like, and I think maybe that's why some people struggle is because they're so used to this idea that once I know my type, it will set me free. You know, like once I know who I'm an ESTJ or I'm an ENFP, I'm set for life. Whereas OP is like, nope, guess what? Those are the things that got you your problems. Now you got to start taking responsibility of all this other stuff. And I think that having some mindfulness and having some meditation, having that to help you on that journey is is huge you know I think that I think that that's why it's so traumatizing for some people because they don't come they haven't been mindful they haven't been paying attention really and then you're they're given this type and they're like oh wait this doesn't work for me and I feel stuck you know there's also uh, just um on the traumatizing aspect of things there is an interesting thread in the Facebook group as to like what would offend you the most Mm -hmm. and it was essentially like everybody saying 
if my if somebody insulted me how I do my demons if somebody oh. insulted how I do my demons yeah and essentially OPS is or like you know if you paid Dave and Shannon to get your type you paid someone to tell you hey you suck at your demons exactly. so of course that's gonna hurt it's gonna hurt like yeah. it's gonna hurt and it's gonna be an adjustment period but that's the thing like are you adjusting or are you pushing away at that yeah. reality reality in this case being like two individual two independent observers notice that you're leaving a void in these areas yeah that's all that reality means it doesn't mean that you actually are in all of life that this is your end all be all yeah so that's where you know they talk about bias training for when you're typing people so that you can start to recognize and see your biases you know and like being able to observe your thought patterns is a way to do that like because you can start to take some distance and not not uh you know, identify so much with your own thoughts. So you can start to put some distance between that. And so, yeah, if they say you suck at your demons, you can be like, okay, maybe I do. <laughs> you said it. Two independent people have now told me this. And you can put some space there. And and just because something is a demon doesn't necessarily mean you suck at it. It just means that you feel stuck there. You, yeah. you don't feel as movable as you do in your saviors. And you have to, you feel obligated to do your savior before you can do your demon right right exactly so you can have something as a demon and still rock at it yeah and sometimes people are even better at them because because they don't just throw around their demon you know willy-nilly the way we do with our savior especially our top top savior yeah I, i think i remember them mentioning that in a class that uh you know people even with demon and i might be actually better at it than us than a i and j because the i and j is just n i n i n i for everything yeah. <laughs> right yeah or, or like in, in this case for example or like if you're talking about animals like you have sleep last but because you do make time for your sleep and because you do do it um you probably sleep way better better yeah um than i do if if you know if yeah. sleep could be quantified. Yeah, that's true. I don't even know what that would mean. Yeah, right. But yeah, it's because I'm obligated to do all my other animals first. I've kind of gotten all that stuff out of my system. And so that requires me to, to you know, make space for that sleep processing time. And really, really, like when I'm going to do sleep processing, I'm going to sit down and be serious about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. As you mentioned, you, you, yeah. you have your prayer beads and all, you yeah. have your little whole, zen. Whole yeah. zen. I got the zafu. I haven't seen my zafu in a while, actually. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. for me, when I sleep, it'll be mid-conversation and I'll just pause for yeah. 10 seconds and go off into my own world. <laughs> yeah. So we both kind of mentioned how um, we use mindfulness as this tool. Could you share a little bit about like how what what does that actually look like in a in a more sensory fashion how has it impacted you i will try <laughs> <laughs> sensory is not my primary language now um i think uh, a lot of the things that i've kind of been been saying but for for me uh i think mindfulness has taught me how to allow space between my thoughts and my identification with those thoughts. I think that's the biggest thing for, for me personally. So whether that's my identity, whether that's, um, you know, my, what's actually happening in my reality, but it's, it's taught me. And, and when I have a really strong practice, I'm better at it, obviously, you know, <laughs> than when you don't. I mean, it, it is kind of like a workout. It's very much a muscle. It is yes. a mental muscle. Like, you know, if you stop going to the gym, your muscles are going to atrophy, atrophy. a little bit. Yeah. They're not going to be as strong as they were when you were going three times a week. Yeah. And mindfulness is exactly like that. Like, if you don't practice it, it's going to be harder to observe your thoughts without going into them. Without going, exactly. And so, I mean, that's what it's done. That's personally what it's done for me. It's allowed me to have that space between my uh what happens to me, my situation, and then my response to that. Like we used to say, I think I even had like a graphic that showed this. It was like a situ. you have the situation, you have a little space, and then you have your action. And so rather than being reactive, you're being more responsible for your actions. You're being more, you're, you're choosing your actions, letting, rather than just reacting out of a um, impulse, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a really good way of explaining it. Uh, I think the thing that has been most um, transformative for me when I, the first time that I, so I took the mindful self-compassion class twice. And what it is, is if I've already explained this, I'm sorry. So traditionally, when when you look at like psychology historically, there was a lot of research on self-esteem, self-esteem, you know, like give everybody an award so that they don't have bad self-esteem. Yeah. And probably about... 
10 years ago, maybe early 2000s, there was this one researcher, Kristen Neff, out of UT Austin, um, that she started, actually, she came to it through the Buddhist tradition as well, um, self-compassion, this idea of Mm self-compassion. And um, she started doing research about, well, what happens, people who practice self-compassion versus people who don't. And um, so today, there's there's a good body of research about self-compassion and its um, advantages and how it helps us be more psychologically resilient. Um, it reduces symptoms of depression and anxiety and like yeah. all of this great, great research. Yeah. And so her and this other practitioner, Chris Gerber, the two of them came together and they created this workshop, this class. It's an eight-week class that takes co- uh, self-compassion, mindfulness, brings them together into how you can grow your own self-compassion through mindful practices um, in order to live a happier, more fulfilling life. You know, the life that you want instead of like having the the critical constantly in your head driving you there's other ways of motivating yourself that don't have to be quite as harsh yeah um i was just looking up because you were making me think of um john cabot zinn's program the mindfulness-based yes. stress reduction yes um he was one of the early teachers and they started he started from the insight meditation tradition as well and um yeah a and lot I think of john cabot zinn has been doing research on this for decades oh, yeah. on mindfulness right i think like yeah. he started in the 80s like bringing I, it into the sensory bringing it into academic journals yeah it may even be longer than that like he's known sort of in the buddhist circles as one of these sort of like godfathers of the western buddhist tradition and and bringing bringing these practices to the west and then making them secular you know to kind of taking the religion out of it and kind of looking at how can these practices practices be utilized in the more secular and everyday world because I think they can be you know I mean I think that you don't need all of the extra you know dressing on it I mean, yeah I mean, yeah <laughs> I, I yeah think the dressing if you will yeah I, I'm good proof of that because I, I'm an atheist and this is very powerful and very important part of my life um and I don't need the religious aspect of it in order to have right for it to have value in my life yeah yeah, 1979, he came over. There we go. He founded oh, wow. the. I was yeah, close. You were. <laughs> 1979, he founded the Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts. Yeah. And so that was kind of the start of the mindfulness-based stress reduction and um, self-compassion and so forth. Because there's a lot of, um, you know, compassion practices and so forth. And like Tibetan Buddhism especially has a lot of good stuff there. Um, there is. Um, I just yeah. remembered. So earlier we, you had mentioned rumination. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I said I wanted to mention something about it and I'd get back to it. So I guess this is me getting back to it. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. So th- there's really interesting research on rumination, um, which when I first came across the term, I um, didn't have a negative association with it. Do you? What kind of association well, do you have with it? I think, unfortunately, I may know too much also because um, oh, okay. I was just I actually this is so uh, it's interesting. I want to know what you're going to say, because. Uh, I have the Calm app. Speaking of meditation, I use the Calm app and they have a Calm Masterclass on depression. And so he was just talking about rumination like yesterday. I was listening to it and saying all the negative things about it. So I have a negative connotation of rumination. Plus, like my own experience of rumination is never good. Like I never ruminate on the positive. I only go on negative thought spirals. Yes. Very much so for me as well. Especially if I'm physically feeling bad, then I go down such a dark path, dark rumination. So then since it's fresh in your head, um, (laughs) could you explain what rumination is? So, okay, I'll try. (laughs) I don't don't know that I have a clear definition of it in my head. Yeah, I'll just tell you, like, I'll tell you, like, the impression I got from it was that, and what I think of it when I think of rumination, is it's kind of... um, well in buddhism we used to call it discursive thought which is you have like you you go over an experience but you but it's not just it's not just sort of neutrally looking at your experience it's applying judgments on your experience usually negative especially if you're me (laughs) like this happened and i was no good because i messed up this that and the other thing and oh i also messed this up and i could have done that and i you know it's usually like this this thought pattern that just goes over and over and over and one of the things they said in this class was that um sometimes 
sometimes the best way to get yourself out of it is literally to just distract yourself, just like break, just break it, like play a game or do something else. Because they said a lot of people will ruminate out loud where they'll bring in a friend into this. And it's just that, is that negative talk? That echo chamber. That echo yeah. chamber. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what he said also was it comes from um, cows and stuff because cows just chew on cud, you know, they just mm-hmm. chew grass and then it goes in their stomach and they spit it back up and chew it again. And so that's where the word like ruminant comes from. Uh, so it's the same kind of thought pattern like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, th- this was the thing that when I took the Mindful Self-Compassion course the first time, I took it last spring, um, spring of 2018, and then I took it again in the fall of 2018. And I'll probably take it again <laughs> at some point because I do well in those kinds of structures. But that's, anyway, that's irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. I do too. We could talk about uh, retreat at some point too, speaking oh, of structure. I'm like terrified by it, but I really want to. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, though. I cut you off. So one of the things that was the most powerful from that is is this. So I'd, I'd come across the concept of rumination in other areas of psychology. But the thing that mindfulness offers is that, um, like you said, there, there's this little buffer that prevents the reactivity, right? Right. And so it, in the application of self-compassion, it is I'm feeling an emotion. It's acknowledging that emotion and then just stopping. Yes. Whereas our natural inclination is feeling that emotion and then either pushing away that emotion, which is probably the savior tease, are like, no, I don't have that emotion, pushing it away, <laughs> pushing it away, pushing it away. Right. Or, um, and this is probably the savior Fs, going into that emotion and bringing up the narrative that elicited that emotion. And by having that narrative, you re-elicit that emotion. And emotions usually last, like, I think the research is like 90 seconds or something like that. So (laughs) they don't, like, last. It is our continuous thoughts and the thoughts that bring up that emotion over and over and over again. And so if we can break that cycle, if we can break that rumination, then... um, and, and just observe it with neutrality, without a positive judgment or a negative judgment. And that's what mindfulness allows us to do. Right, right. In a really powerful way. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of our types and like, I don't know, this is the way I've always seen it or experienced it. So um, where you said like T types will push it away. I think what happens with me is and maybe because I'm a sometimes I feel like there's downsides of being a double decider. So like I'll be very aware of my FI and sometimes sometimes my FI will say you suck right to like evelyn evelyn sucks but then i feel like it kicks it up to the savior te who's like oh okay well let's find all the reasons why you suck (laughs) and then like i come up with all these reasons and i try to talk to my husband who's savior ti and he's just like that all of that is bullshit like what are you talking about and i'm like no but i found this and i found this and i found this and i found this and i've got like i've got like a reason machine because my te is double activated and it's like and i've got any so i'm coming up with all these abstract reasons right <laughs> like they don't even have to be based in reality <laughs> and it just it causes a negative spiral and i think I, maybe that's why like i mean i do believe them that i'm sleep last but i think like part of the reason why i've avoided because uh, like I said, I, I was sort of comparing sleep to rumination a little bit when I initially brought it up. And I think part of the reason I've avoided going over my past experience is because it can become painful. It becomes this like whole thing. Um, but what I've realized in getting my type and understanding what SIFI sleep means is it, it doesn't mean going into that whole thing. It doesn't mean kicking it back up to the TE to go find all the reasons, right? It's very introverted. It's very much like, okay, this happened to me and I felt this way about it. And that's okay. Yes. It's like giving yes, space exactly. for that to be. Yeah. Yes. Giving space. I think that's very well put because, well, one of the things that the research says, um, the self-compassion research is that when we do just create space for it uh, without trying to bring in the whys or the hows or yeah. justifying it yeah. or judging it or any of that, very often, not always, of course, but it'll dissipate on its own. And that just like that neutral observation which is what mindfulness is at its core that neutral observation of your emotional state or whatever other things are happening is very often enough but we don't do that we go straight into judging it or somehow trying to work it out and in that process we actually amplify that emotion yeah exactly. and make it more like present where it won't move yeah whereas if we're like oh you know what i'm feeling angry right now and that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. No whys, no hows, no justifications or denials. Just uh-huh. I'm feeling angry right I'm now. I'm feeling angry. Yeah. Just just acknowledge it 
and and that's pretty much it <laughs> again and move it on sounds, to the next thing it sounds really simple but a lot of the research does support that it's that hard. is actually really powerful yeah it, and it, it's hard to do but it's really powerful yeah and it, it's definitely a muscle because we don't naturally at least i don't like i definitely like you guys can't see this because it's audio medium but i keep like flailing my arms around <laughs> because that's what it's like it's like this wheel that just goes around and around and around it just digs a hole like it's it's not good yeah i think for me that has been the most powerful thing that i've learned from the mindful self-compassion class and i'm really glad we're talking about this right now because i really need this reminder um (laughs) i've I've had a rough couple of weeks and definitely been ruminating a lot yeah um and sometimes this is what you need to just kind of like snap out of it in some ways Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. dave and shannon are always saying this but like this is just it feels so absolute and it feels like reality, but it's not. It's just our yeah. own our own internal mechanisms. Mechanisms, play. programming. And again, you know, yeah, bringing this to OP, I think, I think that's why mindfulness is such a good sort of complement to OP or a tool to use within that because they do say that. You know, they, they talk about how like um, when we're in our tidal waves or we're in our observer freakouts or whatever, it's absolutely real in our head, but you know, to, a, you know, to someone else, they're not seeing it that way. And mindfulness kind of allows you to have that, uh, that other perspective too, that it teaches you how to like, okay, wait a minute. This is just an Illuminati fear. I'm just <laughs> fearing the Illuminati. It's not real. <laughs> you know, yes. like you can start to see that programming operate. Yeah. And that's hard, you know, like I've, I've been really struggling, like when I notice myself, um, freaking out at some ni trying to control me and recognizing like i mean the fir- the first step is recognizing that like hey that ain't real yeah <laughs> um and i think i'm there where i'm able to recognize a lot of it as not real but i still very much feel stuck and like yeah but but now what like okay so it's not real but it feels so real right and i think that's where you can step in with a mindfulness and bring your your nervous system back down to a calm state instead of that emotional spike that like hey it's okay no one's trying to control you even if they are it's okay it's not the end of the world you can do this it's okay yeah and it for for some reason so okay so you mentioned the the spike which then made me think of them typing people because a lot of times they type people based on their spikes and stuff <laughs> and then uh, i was thinking of there's another thing uh, mindful eating you know, like learning yes. how to sort of like see your desire for that cookie and like just watch that and not take the cookie. And it's kind of the same thing. I know Dave talks about this with your saviors and your demons is like, like you're all like the, there's going to be a part of you that's always going to have that spike. Like you're you're going to just have it. But once you learn to just like watch it, like, OK, I'm having that spike. I'm having the Illuminati fear. It's happening. And I'm better now, <laughs> you know, like learning how to like yes. ride that. Yeah, I think yes. mindfulness can really, really help. Yeah, exactly. Because mindfulness is not, uh, mindfulness does not have opinions. Yes. Right. Mindfulness does not have deciders. It doesn't have judgments. It just is. So it's like, I'm feeling this thing. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. still feeling this thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, but now I'm not. But now I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. It will. And just creating space for that. Just yeah. that pause before reacting. Before like you, you said, that little before buffer. you, yeah, before you take it up as like this is reality and I'm gonna go to bat now. I mean, that's really the whole the whole thing. At least a lot of times with me, maybe because I have masculine te. I don't know. I want to start to fight things, <laughs> and so it's like I don't have to. I don't have to pick up the hammer. Like I can just yes. feel that desire, and then just not actually hit, not actually swing. Yeah. And actually, I'm glad you brought up the masculine TE because I've noticed that part in myself as well that like, I actually think this is happening maybe in like a week or so ago when you and I were chatting <laughs> on Slack. And I noticed myself getting like really defensive and like taking oh. out my masculine TE and masculine SE. And I had this pause. I'm like, what? Like, this isn't even important. Just let it go. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so funny. Like, that I mean, again, it's, it's back to the train, like don't jump on the train. Right. But but I think in day to day life, it's just it's really even harder. And that's where like a strong mindfulness practice helps. And so I I will drop in a little bit about retreat practice here. Yes. Yes. Because that has been the point in my life where I feel like it, like I love retreat practice because that's when you can like really, really get mindful. Like 
you can live a lifestyle for a week or whatever, however long the day, you know, where you are not taking up that reactivity for a longer period of time. And it's, it's such a different way of like going through life. So I've been on, I've been on a lot of retreats. Like I don't remember how many, cause I've done a lot of like one day ones, but I've also done like five, three to five day residential retreats. Um, like the first one I did was in Atlanta where I actually, I mean, it's basically you live the monk life for a week. Like I showed up with a bag, they gave me a dorm room and I lived at the Zendo. It, it, it's the silent retreats? Silent retreat. Yeah, which so like silent. terrifies me. Not being able to talk for a week. Are you kidding me? But at lead, the same time. Lead play, double activated, double extrovert. <laughs> I can't be quiet. Yeah, I actually have gotten in trouble in retreat for, for talking to people. <laughs> but um, just recently I found these like audio, uh, like audio diary or like audio memos or whatever that you can save on the iPhone from like retreats I took like years ago, like 2011, 2012, where I'm processing, I'm basically sleep processing what happened to me on retreat. So I was silent through the retreat and like on the drive home, I recorded these things. And it's just really interesting because a lot of that reactivity, like you still experience it, of course, on silent retreat, you know, but, but for just a few days, because you're silent and because you're really trying to be mindful, you live a life where you aren't taking up as much of that of the hammer and like like but it's so funny the judgments that come up even on retreat like that guy's not eating right and you find yourself in your head (laughs) like he's not eating right and i don't like that like you're so judgy like it's insane yeah but right i mean because like default programming that's our default programming right like we're gonna do it um whether we want to or not it's just acknowledging it and letting it go exactly exactly letting it go that's the thing my whole life especially with my savior sleep people have been telling me like just let it go just, just let, let it, it go, go. Mm-hmm. and every time somebody says that i'm like give me a sensory <laughs> definition of what the fuck that means <laughs> right i was like, like i remember having that conversation with my sister yeah. where she like she couldn't i'm like give me a sensory definition i don't know what you're talking about yeah uh, like how do i let go and then mindfulness gave Finally me a sensory definition <laughs> of what that do. means yeah yes yeah. and it's been very powerful yeah which yeah, for so. the record it's it's that you know not going into the emotion it's just observing it with neutrality that's what letting it go means like that's that's how you can let go right 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 no i'm glad you said that because i'm sure there was a person like you <laughs> yelling at the thing like <laughs> yes you're yes. still not saying <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, And I I even mentioned this in my typing video. I talked about how um, I found a lot of freedom in that routine also, because the other thing about retreat is like every minute of your day is basically scheduled. Like there is some some like downtime, but like every block of time is like scheduled out. And like as an EP, I loved it. (laughs) It was like and I had mentioned this in my video and said how like for me, the freedom was in the routine. And apparently there's this uh, Navy SEAL Jocko that they talk about. This like alpha ES, I think he's like an ESFP or an ESTP. One of the, one of the, an he EP. is uh, S-E-T-E? Oh, is he? S-E-F-E? Okay. He's lead play, but he's an Savior SE lead play guy. Yeah, apparently that's something he says. And I hear sitting here, I like when I said it in my typing video, I totally thought this was an Evelyn Cash original. Like I did not know <laughs> that this other person has said this. And I said it in like this savior, like, or I, like an alpha state kind of like, of like, I had this discovery, guys. The freedom is in the routine. <laughs> like the way I say it, like even in my video, you can see it. It's just like, I discovered this. Um, and they're like, yeah, Jocko said that, like way back i'm just like oh well i i found it in retreat like that was what did it for me um all and and so like that whole like eating wrong it's because at least in zen retreats there's actually a formal way to eat (laughs) there actually is like a a form for eating and i and yeah like it's so funny to re-listen to these audio memos that i took because like i'm saying like the guy's not paying attention to the form of eating (laughs) like i'm like (laughs) punching on the sensory on the on the s on the si if you will right because i was just like it needs to be this way (laughs) 
we were taught <laughs> a, a little tangential well, well relevant to what you're saying tangential to mindfulness um one thing that i've noticed for myself is that um and I wonder if this is perhaps a, a shift, uh, not a shift, a, a difference um, attributed to SE versus NE, maybe. Mm-hmm. For me, I find a lot of, like, I, I'm SE, Savior EP, and I'm a very organized person. Like, mm, my sensory yeah. is very organized. And the reason I need my sensory to be organized is because then I can't spot the new. Mm. If everything is chaotic, then I don't know what is new and what is not. Yeah. Whereas if my sensory is organized, then I can spot when something is new or yeah. needs attention in some way. Oh, yeah. That is interesting. And that's where I found a lot of freedom. Yeah. Well, it's in. So, again, an EP, the, yeah. the freedom is in the control. But for us, it's like this, like, special jewel that we've, like, found. <laughs> Whereas the IJs right, are like, right. well, yeah, duh. That's what I spend my whole life doing. Actually, a lot of the savior NI that I know, like lead NIs, are just, their rooms are so like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Levels of mess. I think because they don't want to deal with the SE, right? They just don't Yeah, wanna, I think. Yeah. They don't want to deal with any sensory. For, yeah, any sensory. And I can, I can relate to that too. Like, I don't want to. So I set up systems such that I just don't have to. Um, yeah. Oh, I was about to really, okay, here's any jumping topics here. Uh, <laughs> do you remember that clutter bug lady when she had the different types of clutter bugs? I have no idea what you're talking <laughs> <Okay>. about. <laughs> there was this, uh, this is not related to mindfulness, but it's kind of related to this whole EP needing control thing. Um, there's these different types of the way that you like to tidy up, if you will. And mm. so she, this, this woman on YouTube has these clutter bugs. Check her out. She's got a podcast, too. Um, and I'm a, uh, I'm a ladybug. And the ladybugs were the ones that just, like, take all the junk and stick it somewhere and then cover it up. Because, like, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. <laughs> and I don't care what's in there. Whereas my husband is a bee where he likes, like, if you could see this cabinet next to me, he likes all of his things. Kind of like to you. Like, where you're like, I like my things organized. And I, but do you like to see them? Like, are they on display organized? Or are they, like, uh, I mean, organized? yeah. Yeah. As long, as long I don't want to see them. Like, everything, all of my sensory has to have a home. Yes. Th- that That's that's my, like, how my brain works. Like, if my sensory has a home, whether it's on a bookshelf or in a drawer or, like, my files that are organized on my computer, whatever it is. My yeah. sensory has to have a home so that if it's not in its home, that means that, hey, that's S-E, go pay attention to it. Right. Whereas when it is in its home, it's like, oh, I don't need to know that. Like, that's fine. That's fine. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I guess that's that's this. I wonder if that's an S-E-N-I access thing. I, that's what I'm wondering if it is, too. <laughs> Me too. I'm wondering that. Whereas the NESI, I'm just like covered up. I don't want to see it. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to know that. Like, although th- that might be Savior N versus Savior S. Right, Savior. N. My sister is Savior SI, and she's everything needs a home, like I am. Anyway, that was a total tangent. That was tangent mindfulness. <laughs> I think that just goes to show that perhaps um, it's time to wind down this episode. Yeah. Uh yeah. Because I, I I touched on pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about. So we'll, we'll include a lot of the things that we talked about, like um, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Gerber and their Mindful Self-Compassion class. We'll include all of that stuff in the show notes or on the... Subreddit. On the subreddit, yeah. As far as resources and things for anybody who's curious or if you guys have any questions for us, like, let us know. Yeah. Happy to talk about it. Because I, I just... Yeah. This is the tip of my uh, ice, iceberg on when it comes to, yeah. to meditation. I actually... I actually got the opportunity to go to the head temple of Soto Zen Buddhism in Japan. And that was really cool. Nice. Where in Japan is it? <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. It's like in the middle of nowhere-sville. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Well, there's two, whatever. There's two temples, but there's one that's kind of like the sort of the home, like where the guy who came up with this practice where he originally was, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. Like you have to take a train and a bus, it's up a hill, but it's very beautiful. <laughs> So it was really cool to, and I just went there like as a tourist, like you can actually practice there and stuff and they'll let you, if, as long as you're, you know, a practitioner, they'll let you stay and stuff. But, um, but yeah, so that was cool. It was a really cool experience to, to go there and kind of see. And it's of course very beautiful because Japan, Japanese temples are very beautiful. 
<laughs> so. They are. They really, really are. I went to Japan, and I happened to be there during the wintertime and saw some of the temples with, like, fresh snow on them, oh, and yeah. it's a stunning sight. Yeah. Yeah, they're beautiful in every season, too. <laughs> I think before we wrap up, I wanted, um, what do you, I, I kind of wanted to give a broad overview, more specifically, what mindful self-compassion is. Sure, yeah. Go for it. Um, so I guess the uh, going to go over some of the things that I went over in my lightning talk. <laughs> um, so more like at its core, what is mindful self-compassion? Um, mm-hmm. It's the idea of treating yourself with the same kindness that you treat other people when you're at your best. Yeah. So like if your friend has a really bad day and like say they're running a race and they trip in the beginning of the race and after the race they are just like, beating themselves up do you like go to them and be like yeah you fucked up you should have done better or are you like hey it's okay it happens we all make mistakes right so it's the idea of taking that and applying that to ourselves um and treating ourselves with the same kind of compassion and there's kind of three major points to it um the first one is that we treat ourselves with self-kindness rather than Mm self-judgment um so just like Instead of flooding ourselves with self-criticism of how we're not perfect or getting angry um, or fighting against whatever the situation is, we just kind of, like, give ourselves some self-kindness that, like, yeah, I am worthy. I'm, I exist, therefore I'm worthy kind of sentiment that, like, just being kind and gentle to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to be an EJ. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I mean, you can be an yeah. IP and still struggle with yeah. being kind to yourself. Right. Um, that is actually, if you want some numbers, uh, 78% of people treat others better than they treat themselves. Yeah, I believe it. Um, so that's like four out of every five people mm-hmm. is much better at offering that kindness to other people than we are at offering that kindness to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second part of it is kind of concentrating on our common humanity rather than isolating ourselves. So isolation, that kind of looks like, oh, everyone else is okay. I'm the one that's fucked up. Or, like, yeah. nobody can understand what I'm going through. Yeah. So instead of thinking about that and kind of going into that rumination spiral, um, concentrating on common humanity, like, you know what? I'm angry right now, uh, but anger is just a part of being human. Yeah. And that's an experience that we all have. Or yeah. I'm feeling shame because I just fucked up. Um, that's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. That's part of the human experience. Yeah, I was just uh, kind of to prepare for this. I was re-listening to at least parts of the Dalai Lama's book that he did with uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It's the Book of Joy. Really good book. Um, But they talked about exactly that, about isolation versus loneliness. Like you could be alone, but not feel isolated as long as you remember your common humanity with others. And you can be in a crowded room and feel super isolated because to your point, you're saying everybody else is not like me. Um, and so it's finding that common humanity. Yeah. Which which I think the first time I did the course, that was the thing that kind of just did not land for me at all. It's hard. But and then on the second time, it, it really is a very powerful concept once um, you really own it rather yeah. than just hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than playing lip service to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last part of mindful self-compassion, which is you and I have been talking about quite a bit, is the mindfulness rather than over-identification. So, like, not necessarily going into the narrative of, like, um, going into the emotion when you're experiencing it, but just being mindful of it and giving yourself that little buffer before you are reacting or judging or pulling in your decider functions in mm-hmm. any way. Right. You're just right. observing with neutrality. Mm-hmm. Or burying it. Like, I know a lot of people, that's their thing, is, like... I'm just going to bury this, (laughs) you know, this, this puts it out in the light and like allows you to acknowledge it and see it. And like you, like you said earlier, like, let it go, you know, (laughs) give it space. Yeah. Like, uh, my savior MTE EJ sister, uh, when she was a teenager, when she was like 16 years old, her best friend said something about like, she was crying and her best friend said something about like, suck it up. And (sighs) since then my sister's cried maybe three times. Yeah. Like, 
uh, because she has that demon FFI all the way on the bottom and she just pushes it aside and like, no, there's no space for crying. And only, and it's interesting because the two people closest in her life are me, Savior FFI, and her husband, who is an FIIP. Like, clearly she needs some of that in her life. So have have I ever told you... Well, here we go. I'm going to tell you my kind of story as a savior, yeah. T-E-M-T-E. Very, very similar kind of story. Uh, except for I still don't know the real sensory facts of this, but somebody had written on the board, this is the I Hate Evelyn Club. When I was <gasps> in, I don't know, elementary school, I saw that. And same kind of, I've just like, it's like part of my demon FI now <laughs> that there's oh. an idea out there that there's this I Hate Evelyn Club. It's crazy. Well, someone's an asshole. Yeah, you know, some asshole. And also kid. a kid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. But and yeah, so having we, that we carry those things with us. Yeah, we do. And I think that's why um, Shannon recently said in one of the classes, um, oh, this is in response to the question that you and I asked. Oh, yeah. About what's been your biggest learning from 2018. Oh, yeah. And I really loved Shannon's response to that. And her response was she spent some time. And um, even though SI is not really in her stack, SIFI going back over her known information and almost rewriting her understanding of it. Yeah. So like when you have that experience as a kid, uh, rewriting the understanding in terms of like as an adult, yeah, this this thing happened, uh-huh. but it um, instead of like tantruming about it or how it's not my responsibility, it's not my fault, it's not my blame, um, like taking ownership of it even though it's in your past and taking yeah. ownership of everything and not necessarily in a way that like it's it's just shifting from victim to agent yeah like you have yeah. agency it's, over your life exactly i think it's you know and i said this to her too at the meetup was like it's not that i'm responsible for everything that happens to me but i am responsible for my reaction to that thing you know yes i am like maybe that happened maybe it didn't but how am i gonna now react what's my life story gonna be what's the chapter gonna be because of that and that yes that is what all of this is about is like learning how to uh, be responsible instead of reactive yeah and i think that's a beautiful note to close on <laughs> yeah and we're done now uh so want to share your thoughts you can do so on our subreddit the objectively typed subreddit there will be a link in the show notes um we'll also post our upcoming show topic and who we're typing next when we're doing one of our typing episodes so you can type along with us um thanks for listening to objectively typed with evelyn and versavia and so until next time thanks bye <laughs>